The Young Jerks are sponsored by UFCW 1445, a labor union representing cannabis employees in Massachusetts. Currently, UFCW is holding a union election at NETA New England Treatment Access in Brookline, as well as at Mayflower. If you are a cannabis employee worried about your health and safety and are not being heard at work, call the union at UFCW local 1445.org or call them at 1-800-439-1445. So we are live with Devin Alexander today, and uh, as folks may have seen in the promo for the episode, Devin Alexander is one of the first uh, adult use delivery applicants uh, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Uh, as a little context before we dive right in, for those who are not aware, the way that delivery licenses work in Massachusetts is there's two different forms of delivery licenses. One type is where a micro business, which is an integrated cultivator and manufacturer, can apply to deliver their own products directly. And then another type of delivery license is called a standalone delivery license or soon to be called just a delivery license. Now this type of license allows someone like Devin to own a fleet of cars and a transport hub, work with retail brick and mortar locations for now, and provide delivery to consumers throughout the Commonwealth. Now what makes this such a special license type is that for a period of, of at minimum two years, Devin and his fellow social equity and economic empowerment applicants are gonna have an exclusive shot at obtaining both of those types of delivery licenses. So this is really an awesome interview. I'm very excited for it. Before we dive in, just a, a welcome to everyone. Thank you for watching The Young Jerks. You can find more information about The Young Jerks at uh, facebook.com forward slash The Young Jerks. You can read our content at content at midnightmass.substack.com. And as always, you can find our podcasts after each episode airs on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor, uh, or anywhere else where your podcasts are found. Uh, we also have a new sponsor, as you can see, uh, UFCW 1445. Thank you very much to them and for the work they've been doing in New England related to the cannabis industry. Uh, so Devin, after my long-winded intro, thank you very much for being with us today. Can you tell us, for uh, folks who are just seeing you for the first time, uh, what's your history, uh, what's your story, how'd you get involved with cannabis, and how'd you come to Open Rolling Relief? All right, yeah, so my name is Devin Alexander. I'm a long, long, I've lived in Mass I've lived Massachusetts my whole life. I grew up in Quincy. I've lived here for 26 years. Um, I went to elementary school all the way to Quincy College. Um, after college, I got, started working at CVS Pharmacy in the pharmacy as a pharmacy technician, and I would do roles such as filling prescriptions, talking to insurance companies, and talking to doctors. I would do this in my local city. So a lot of the people that came into the pharmacy were people I knew, people I grew up with, and their parents. And working in a pharmacy is an ugly business. You, you're selling poison to people legally, and it just got to be too much. So there's a dispensary in Quincy called Ermont, and I had three friends prior already working there. So that was my in. So I've been working at Ermont's medical marijuana dispensary. It was the seventh one to come on state. I've been working there for the past two years. I started out as a bud tender, and then I worked my way up to become uh, the event coordinator. I've done community outreach for like 
um, beach cleanups, community cleanups, and back in September, we hosted a national expungement event where we gave individuals the tools and the resources to help them remove nonviolent cannabis crimes from their criminal record. And I knew about the social equity program before it officially launched for months in advance. And it was something I really wanted to be a part of, seeing how I didn't know about the economic empowerment window. There was only a two week window, which I wasn't informed about. So really getting into the social equity program was huge for me. Um, I qualified for the social equity program by being from Quincy. Um, Quincy is one of the 29 areas of disproportionate impacts and it got that way due to the number of high drug arrests in the city, which I was back, I was, I'm part of that statistic back when I was a senior in high school, I got arrested for a small cannabis possession, um, two, two bags, $20 worth. I had plans of going into the air force and those would be derailed because of that. So when I was a senior in high school, the medical program didn't exist. I had no idea what I was going to do after I got rejected from the air force. So I'm just very fortunate that I've have a career in cannabis right here in my own backyard in my own state that's absolutely true uh it is an industry that has provided opportunity for folks like yourself and although there has been some criticism leveled uh, recently at the structure of some of the uh, equity programs. I would like to say that having watched you on social media for, I think, years now, I've seen the way that these programs have provided you the kind of opportunity that has allowed you to get to the point where you now have this company. You've gone through a uh, program that assisted you with learning about the industry, and you're now in a position where you can reach out, grasp the brass ring, and actually become an owner. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about how the social equity program in particular is set up and how it gave you resources that allowed you to move into this space you're currently in now? Yeah, definitely. So the social equity program has about four different tracks, the entrepreneur track, the entry and reentry, and ancillary, and there's like a management professional track. So I was part of the entrepreneur track. It's the, it has the most classes in it. It has uh, 14 courses that deal with business plan creation, um, agent, agent training, marketing, advertising. And at the end of the social equity program, the CCC provided us with a list, a long list of people who will give us pro bono or discounted services ranging from accounting to help acquiring a host community agreement, setting up your security. So it's just been a valuable resource. I talk, um, one of my instructors in the social equity program uh, was Lori Lucian, and she's been a very great help her and her team over at Greenlight Business Solutions. And another of the equity vendors that we had was Point Seven Group. They're, um, they're based out of Denver, Colorado, but their CEO, Ashley Pacello, is from Boston. She's right there in Boston. And they really helped me along. They've helped me uh, with this website called Live Plan, which has been enormous to helping me create my business plan. It helps set up an investor deck. It helps you with pro forma projection, cash flow management, uh, balance sheet creation, and all of that. And so just having this network of people so I can lean on has been a huge help for me in each step of the process. Oh, that, that's awesome. Um, and it actually segues right into what I wanted to ask you about next, which is can you tell us a little bit about 
the priority period that the Commission has set up for delivery applicants. It's not just the two-year period, right? It's actually a two-year period that doesn't start until the first commence operation order is issued to either a delivery-only applicant or a micro-business with a delivery endorsement. And then, at the end of the two-year period, the Commission can actually think about extending it uh, if the goals of the period haven't been met. So can, what do you think about that priority period and uh, how it's been implemented? Honestly, to me, that was the biggest attraction to the equity program. That was the crown jewel being part of the social equity program is that you get this exclusive two-year window to run adult use can and delivery services. It's something that I can do that my own work couldn't even do. So I really found that attractive. And so it goes in, so it's basically months. So two years, 24 months. And at month 16 is when the CCC is going to vote on it. So if eight months left in the priority period is when they're going to decide if they're going to extend it an additional year or not. And it's going to be a vote by the commission. And God only knows who's going to be on the commission by that time, who will come around, you know, because there's already an open seat and the issue, there will be more changes by the time that two-year period comes around. So yeah, that was the most attractive thing to me, and I think it's huge. But they can definitely go a little bit further in promoting equity and making the delivery license more attractive to applicants. Yes, it's funny that you say that because our episode today is actually very timely. Uh, folks who follow the cannabis social media arena very closely will know that one of the discussions bubbling up that has been to the credit of a lot of folks uh, in the public consciousness for many years now is the question of, so we talked a little bit earlier about the two different types of delivery licenses. A micro business that can have 5,000 square foot of cultivation, that can purchase 2,000 pounds of flour from other cultivators, and that can get a delivery endorsement to deliver its own cultivated and manufactured products directly to consumers. There's then the delivery only license that Devin's applying for that right now only allows Devin to own cars and basically serve as an Uber Eats style courier for brick and mortar dispensaries. Now, one of the proposals being discussed is to expand the delivery only license that Devin's applying for to allow him to buy a warehouse, to purchase product wholesale from cultivators and manufacturers, and then deliver that product that he purchases wholesale to consumers. Devin, can you take us through a little bit about a little bit? Uh, can you take us through the differences a little bit between those two proposals? And can you tell us why having that ability to purchase wholesale from cultivators and manufacturers would be so vital to the financial sustainability of your business in the long term? Yeah, it can it can strain to the retail, uh, especially in the adult use market where there's taxes and there's a higher price in the medical market. You see, um, an average three and a half grams of flour in the Massachusetts recreational market is sixty dollars. You know, so we have to get everything already prepackaged, already already bagged up, and that's not a financial viability. It's like you're on the street and you're selling doves, and somebody comes and gives you five dubs bagged up and tells you to bring back a hundred dollars that's not that's not you're not going to be making a profit off that you know what i'm saying so being able to buy in bulk and being able to package it ourselves i think that's what the big mso's are afraid of because in that way we can undercut the market and make the prices cheaper if we're packaging ourselves so i'm um, cda yeah. so as something we're going to push for during the public comment period when, when the ccc is revising the regulations that's a big huge part of it or else it's not really going to be fine. It's going to be a race to the bottom, honestly. Yes, and folks will certainly know that uh, right now, actually starting just last week, the Cannabis Control Commission has begun the two to three month long process of doing what's called a regulatory revision. 
And during that regulatory revision, things like expanding Devon and other delivery operators, uh, expanding their ability to purchase wholesale and retail directly is the kind of thing that the commission needs to hear about. So uh, as folks know, every time there's a regulatory revision on the Young Jerks and elsewhere, uh, we cover the details very closely because we want to encourage folks who are listening to get actively involved with that regulatory revision and ensure that their voices are heard in support of Devon, uh, expanding delivery um, uh, services and their ability to purchase product at wholesale uh, in terms of things like expanding uh, access to financial resources for, app for social equity applicants through something like a statewide loan fund, which is Senate Bill 2650, um, along with something uh, that really means a lot to folks in the application queue, which is facilitating a municipal equity priority period. Now, folks who watch The Young Jerks a lot will definitely know that there's a two-track system for obtaining a cannabis license in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Firstly, one must go to the local level and obtain what's called a host community agreement from the city or town in which they want to operate. Once they obtain that licensing, they may then go to the Cannabis Control Commission and obtain their provisional and final licenses. Unfortunately, while the Cannabis Control Commission has a priority structure for applicants like Devin and others, on the local level, there is no such structure. So the question I wanted to ask you, Devin, is would you be in support of a local, uh, a law that allows, excuse me, a structure that allows local cities and towns to have two to three year periods during which they only give host community agreements to equity applicants and don't give host community agreements to people like medical operators or uh, general applicants? 100%, I'm, I'd definitely be in support of that. And um, a lot of municipalities are unaware of the current state of the industry, especially here on the South Shore. When it comes to the South Shore, there's only three medical dispensaries, not a single recreational one. So there's only three, one in Quincy, one in Hanover, and one in Plymouth. And then there's the rest of the South Shore where they approved recreational deliveries, but they don't, recreational sales, but they don't have any storefronts. So the municipality needs to get on board. They need to be educated about what's going on, especially with the current climate of situation, everything going on right now with this whole renaissance of racial diversity going on through the country. I think this is the perfect time to enact such legislation. Now, I think that naturally segues. Um, so Cambridge uh, was very bold and actually decided to take the step of creating a local priority period that would allow them to uh, only issue HCAs to EE applicants for a period of two years. Um, other cities and towns have approached things a little bit differently. For example, Boston also created an equity structure, but instead of relying on the state-based social equity and economic empowerment criteria, they created a sort of points-based system with five criteria. And if you meet a certain number of points under their system, you become a Boston equity applicant. And then when they give out their HCAs, they must give out one equity HCA for every one general applicant HCA they gave out. Comparing the system in Cambridge, where there's just an exclusivity period for EEs for two years, to the system in Boston, what are your thoughts and which model do you think will work better? 100% the Boston model, because the Boston model, they say they want to give technical assistance, you know, Technical assistance is huge, showing everybody the process, showing them business plans, what they need to do, forming an LLC, talking to real estate agents, talking to landlords. And then Boston also wants to create a fund for them as well, which is goes one one another. An equity program without funding is not. 
be it's not a good equity program just like a medical marijuana program without smokable flour is not a good medical program so it needs equity programs need funding they need no interest loans and they need technical assistance yep so that actually every single answer you give seems to be a perfect segue to exactly what i wanted to ask you about which is so um some cities and towns as you said have taken up this idea of equity funding uh, on their own but on the state level, uh, Senate Bill 2650 would actually create a social equity loan fund administered by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, wherein social equity applicants and economic empowerment applicants could receive 0% interest loans from the state so that while going through the application process, they do not get to the point of bankruptcy and end up what's called rolled up into a larger company. So can you tell us a little bit about that social equity loan fund and your thoughts on why lawmakers should adopt it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was introduced by um, Senator Sonia Chang Diaz, and it was last year. It got voted down last year, and now it's coming back again. And it needs, if it's funded by the taxes that we're getting from recreational cannabis, what's the big deal? You know, um, the state made over $420 million in cannabis, uh, um, cannabis sales. Like, where's that money going towards? Where is it? You know, I drive down the street and there's still potholes all over the place. I drive, you know, so I'm really very curious. Um, they need to give it back to the people. And the whole zero interest thing is huge because you see a lot of predators. That's how they get a lot of these equity applicants so they have high interest rates. And then if you default, they roll up your company, which is what we see happening in um, Pennsylvania and Florida and other states. And um, it's very interesting, the uh, nature of the social equity loan fund, uh, because it's not just uh, facilitated by cannabis taxes, but it's uh, facilitated by uh, private donations and public fundraising. So for every dollar that the public raises to help these applicants, $1 comes from the cannabis taxes up to 10%. Now, the reason why that's so important is for those who have watched the excellent coverage in the Boston Globe, uh, in particular by Naomi Martin, she found out last year the state of Massachusetts brought in $70 million in cannabis tax revenue. By 2021, according to New Frontier Data Strategies, which is a Washington data analytics firm, that number is expected to be $225 million in tax revenue for the Commonwealth alone. Last year, there are five categories the state was supposed to use that $70 million on. One of them was helping communities disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. One of them was public safety. Guess which category all $70 million went into and which category zero dollars went into? Exactly, 70 million into the public safety spending, zero into uh, assisting communities disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. So my first question to you is, can you please tell me what your thoughts are on why the state needs to live up to its obligations under the law and fund communities disproportionately impacted by the drug war with cannabis tax revenue? Um, quote unquote reparations, you know, uh, it's, it's what needs to be done. It's the right thing. Um, all of these businesses, as you said, they get rolled up without the funding. They need this fund. Um, the war on drugs is a war on black and brown people. You know, everybody knows that, you know, so it's like being disproportionately impacted and then being scrutinized your whole life. And then you see all these people getting rich off of it all the all the John Bonners of the country and all those people who are so against cannabis, they're profiting like crazy. And Massachusetts was the first state to have a statewide social equity program, but there's no 
equity funding bill, like over in Illinois, where they set up an equity program, they have that going on. And even in some other states, they're starting to get on board with that. So people are going to see Massachusetts as an example about what not to do and how to prove it correctly. And we still have the time to not be that way and still be the leaders of social equity in the cannabis space. I don't like the way it's trending, but we have to, there's, there's more work to be done. The strength in numbers, you know, we have to just make our voices heard, get out there tell our local legislators, our local municipalities, hey, that you support social equity. Yes, and on top of that, the folks who are doing great work to set up things like the social equity program and to set to fight for things like the social equity loan fund, despite the fact that that work undermines an attempt to create a monopoly is crucial. So a huge credit to Commissioner Shaleen Title, to all of her colleagues, to the staff at the commission, who consistently put the public interest ahead of private interest time and time again, whether it was breaking up the monopoly that uh, brick and mortar dispensaries were gonna have over delivery, just so folks were aware. When the Cannabis Control Commission was first thinking about doing delivery, they were going to make it so that only brick and mortar dispensaries could do adult use delivery. But instead of giving that monopoly uh, to those companies, the commission did what was in the public interest under the leadership of Britta McBride and Shaleen Title to their credit. They broke up that monopoly and they gave folks like Devin the chance to have delivery licenses. Is the progress slow? Yes. Is this an institutional bureaucracy that requires a substantial amount of intellectual nuance to navigate? Yes. But can you make progress when you are doing the right thing for the right reasons with the right people around you? Absolutely. And anyone who says otherwise is a lethargic devil. I apologize for that, Devin. I went off a bit. I went off on a bit of a rant there. But do you? <laughs> um, now, what I will say, I actually got that lethargic devil phrase from Immortal Technique, who is uh, one of my favorite uh, political rappers. Uh, so. Oh wow, that's awesome! I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, he's great. I've seen him a bunch of times live. Um, his first album was Immortal uh, Revolutionary Volume One. And yeah. part of the reason I love him so much is that he was selling it out of the back trunk of his car and sold 400,000 copies. Um, yeah. And then on top of that, he has a song called The Poverty of Philosophy. And in The Poverty of Philosophy, he talks about how to make real change in capitalist democracy, you have to be willing to set aside your own personal interests. And if you're not, you end up becoming a tool of the very people who have designed these horrifically oppressive systems throughout the world. And on that note, I actually want to point to something here that's made me very frustrated uh, over the past few weeks. So folks may not be aware uh, that over the past year, there was a proposal from a group of dispensaries called H4168. Now that bill would have brought together the state police, the uh, tax agencies, the Cannabis Control Commission, and others to basically reintroduce prohibition to go after the illegal market to protect the profits of regulated companies. My question to you, Devin, is I would imagine you probably don't like that approach. So could you tell us a little bit about how we can incentivize the unregulated market to come into the regulated market that doesn't involve returning to the drug war? Yes, definitely. And it starts with lowering the barriers to access and helping them gain expungement, helping them clear the convictions from their record and seeing what it is that's keeping them out from the industry and then creating a clear path for them to go from point A to point B to get into industry. And then not even just be a worker, just be up like management programs as well and programs to own, like equity programs, you know? So um, we just have to keep on and just really take it, like really have an educated approach on it and realize 
spread awareness about these programs. A lot of people don't even know these programs exist. When I told people I was part of the social equity program, they're like, what the hell is that? They're like, the program like that? I was like, yeah, the state put it on. So like this spreading awareness is huge, making it known to the people that, hey, these exist out here and they're here to help you. And I think that's such an important mentality because what your mentality reflects is the kind of fair market structure that free market capitalism should be about. Companies that are afraid of competition and try to obtain an artificial regulatory monopoly to sell inferior product at inflated prices are a disgrace to the American Republic. It's an insult to the intelligence of consumers and an insult to the validity and the integrity of the regulatory system. If you're listening to me, and you're part of a scheme to undermine the regulatory system to advance profits for either yourself or your financial backers, be very aware that folks like myself, Devin, and otherwise are acutely in tune to what you're up to and you're not gonna get away with it. Now, um, again, I apologize. I had a bit of coffee before we came on the air and I'm uh, a little bit passionate today. Let me ask you a question, uh, if I may. Before I do, let me take a quick break to do station ID because strangely enough, we're already halfway through. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you're all watching The Young Jerks. Thanks very much for tuning in today. I'm here with Devin Alexander from Rolling Relief. This is Grant Smith. Uh, you can find more content and information from The Young Jerks at midnightmass.substack.com. We just had two excellent pieces run over the past week, and I don't mean to toot my own horn because they were very much collaborative projects. One of them goes in depth on the situation in Cambridge and why it's so important for local cities and towns to be able to have equity priority periods that do not include corporate medical dispensaries when licensing local level cannabis establishments. The second piece was on the excellent hearing the Cannabis Control Commission had last week to begin its regulatory revision process. And of course, you can also find more from The Young Jerks on our podcast, where this episode will be uploaded later today, I am sure, which is located on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Breaker, and anywhere else where your podcasts are found. So, with that as a bit of a reset before I run down the trail of yelling about nefarious malfeasance, um, I get the sense, Devin, that the less businesses that are open the more profit that the currently operating businesses can have. And so you've talked a lot about how reducing barriers to entry is such a crucial component of developing a fair market. You've some, you're someone who's actually seeing that application process firsthand, which is pretty rare. So can you tell us a little bit about the pre-certification structure for delivery and how that was designed by folks like Commissioner Title and her colleagues to help reduce those barriers? So pre-certification is basically the equivalent of getting pre-approved for a mortgage. You take this pre-certification and it acts as a way to open up doors to obtain your HGA. You bring it to the real estaters and say, hey, the CCC is backing me. And you can bring it to potential investors. So that's the process I'm in right now. So what they had me do was I had to upload my business ID, um, the tax ID, my business plan, my plan to obtain general liability insurance, and I had to write 12 different SOPs, standard operating procedures, that range from an inventory plan to a transportation plan to a delivery plan, and so on and so forth. Um, I'm currently in that process right now. I submitted those SOPs, and I got nine out of the 12 correct around the first try, and then I got an RFI just regarding the SOPs. And it's great because there's a tracker now on the website of the CCC where you can actually see your spot in line. And so um, since I'm social equity and I'm not economic empowerment, there's been times where I've been skipped ahead in the line in the process and I've been bumped back. And I've seen mine, it's been a little like bit of a ping pong. I'll go from 
19, the 17, the 16, the 19. And I was like, oh my God. So now I'm in supplemental review queue. I'm sitting at number six as of today. So now I'm just waiting to hear back from them and get all that. That's awesome. So to put this in context, what you're saying is that, first of all, there's two different types of priority, right? So economic empowerment and RMDs, as much as that gives me a grotesque taste in my mouth to have to say. Uh, EEs and RMDs have the top level of priority. And the reason I say that is that medical dispensaries should not have co-equal priority alongside those who are most harmed by the drug war. It doesn't make sense and it's an insult to the integrity of the priority process. But so EEs and RMDs are top tier priority. Yourself as a social equity uh, applicant along with micro businesses, outdoor cultivators, um, disadvantaged business enterprises and others are in a second tier of priority and then below that is general applicants. So what you're telling us is that every time, for example, a medical dispensary or an EE comes up in the queue, even if you're already as an SE at the top of the queue, you get bumped down. That's correct. Yeah. So yeah. Being a ping pong, going back and forth. I've I really tried not to watch it because it's going to drive me crazy. But, the, the, but there has been times when I got the first RFI and I saw it play out in real life. I was like, all right, I'm number eight. Then I refresh, I'm number five. Then I refresh, I'm number two. I'm like, oh shit, I'm up next. And then boom, I get an email for an RFI. <laughs> so it's been cool to watch. And that's been a great thing that the CCC has added in is really knowing your place and where you stand with them. Yes, that is. And that's a tool that uh, really does help applicants. And I'm sure this positive feedback will, will be very, will be something they take into consideration because I know that one of the most difficult things for applicants for years was not knowing. It leads to all sorts, sorts of anxiety, uncertainty, difficulty in strategic decision making. So uh, the ability to be able to see your space in the queue is really far more important than folks realize. Um, but let me ask you uh, about the application process in general. What do you think about it going through it? Not just pre-certification, but the general structure of becoming a cannabis business in the Commonwealth. What are your thoughts? It takes a lot of patience, a lot of time, a lot of patience, you know. So after um, we get the pre-certification, we go up for the provisional, which requires us getting the host community agreement, which is a contract for five years saying that we're going to pay the municipality, which we're operating in at least 3% of our annual gross income. And then we also have to hold the community outreach meeting, which we hold in that community we're operating in and telling them the type of business we're going to run, um, what our hours are going to be, and our plans to keep product out of the hands of adults 21 and younger. So the whole process, I, I don't even know who who's gone through it the quickest i've seen i've seen a lot of people it takes them at least a year minimum to go through the entire process and i'm not sure how fast i can move with delivery seeing as we don't have to really do any build outs you know all we just need is like a space where we have a desk and a filing cabinet and a couple of cameras so hopefully that will help speed the process of going to final um then final license and then getting the commenced operations so i'm really curious at where other people are in the process and who's going to be that first one to commence operations and then going to start the window for, and that one person's going to start the window for everybody so i'm really curious as who is really the furthest ahead in that process yes it's so true someone is going to be that person who begins the window um with the caveat that as you said after 16 months the commission will review the window and it's, it's possible that the uh, period will, will change in duration and maybe even scope. Um, let me, it's, I keep saying, let me ask you because honestly, you're so, it's so fascinating how much you know about this. I 
do not consider myself the most informed person about this, but I watch every day. I have the luxury of being disabled, although it's funny to say that in that way. So I have the ability to keep tabs while I'm going through my doctor's visits and all that. But you really have an in-depth perspective on this, so I'm trying to pull out as much as I can from you here. Um, so the uh, commission at their hearing last Friday, as you may know, was thinking about maybe adding co-ops, women-owned, minority-owned, and veteran-owned businesses eventually to the delivery priority window. Your initial thoughts on that? That's great. As long as they're not the big MSOs, you know, the little guys deserve a chance. You know, I know a lot of great veteran-owned businesses. I know a lot of great women-owned businesses that are in the equity program that, I mean, obviously they're going to get it because of the equity program, but and a lot of general applicants at the time, they, they have to go, they have to get that supplier diversity training so they get labeled as a disenfranchised business enterprise. So being in the social equity program really eliminates the need to go through that. But if you're not in the equity program, that's the step that you're going to want to take because that's going to extradite you to the top and get you in this exclusive window. So I'm all for that. Oh, that's awesome. Um, I know that the commission hasn't voted formally on implementing that expanded uh, category or the potential of expanding the categories. Um, so I know there's going to be some public feedback and I'm sure they'll be very grateful uh, for your insight there. I'm not saying that the commission per se watches all of our live streams, but I like to think the press team checks in on us every once in a while. So. <laughs> Um, now, um, what I guess I'm going to ask you next, uh, your video is, is frozen, so we're going to wait for it to come back. We still have you on audio here. Oh, there you go. So we're going to ask you, uh, I was going to ask you a little bit about running an actual cannabis business. I know you're not to the point where you're going to actually be running your business yet, but how do you think about things like workplace safety, worker relations, unions, and the whole suite of um, issues that come up in the context of managing employees while running a business. Yeah, I think employee relations are vital. You know, you have to show them. So you have to show them that you know what you're doing too. There's a lot of CEOs that currently run cannabis businesses that don't know jack shit about weed. They don't know what weed does. They wouldn't if like they were short staffed, they were severely shortly staffed. Could they hop in and step and do something for a day? You know, um, so that's really the approach I'm taking. I want to be a hands-on CEO from day one. I don't want to just sit back. I didn't get in the industry to just sit in the office all day and sit back. That's not why I like to work in cannabis. I like to be hands-on. I like to in, I like to educate consumers, you know, because that's what I, what I really want to have my business, my delivery business to be about is that my drivers are really educated on the product they're going to be delivering to consumers in case there any questions come up. I don't want them to be like, oh, yeah, it's going to get you really high. Oh, that's great. Great. No, they want, I want them to give an educated, nuanced approach to this. So we really smashed the stigma. And um, I have a lot of friends that work at different dispensaries. You know, you hear stuff about um, a lot of misconduct going on and that just drives me to be perfect you know there's a lot of people have lost faith in their company because of the way their people at the top are acting and i wanted to show them that hey well i'm not going anywhere this is the type of person i am i'm really hands i'm really trusting i'm really i don't want to say your friend because i need that relationship you don't want things to get muddy but i'm not going to be i'm going to be staring on you but i'm not going to be up your ass i'm not going to be really just someone busting your balls constantly and so just really taking the time, you know, showing them appreciation, even just little gifts for their birthday, showing, doing holiday parties like that. A lot of places don't even do that anymore. They don't go out and show really appreciation to their employees. They do it for their customers, but not their employees, you know. Um, it, it's great that 
you bring that up because I really do think that the key to a successful business, whether it's in the cannabis industry or otherwise, is employees who are vested in the company itself, not necessarily financially, although that's great, uh, but who feel like the company is a reflection of the way they would run a company if they were in charge. And so I really am, if everything you've said tonight reflects the kind of ethos that our business community and the cannabis industry needs rather than asking the police to target unregulated sellers, you advocate reducing barriers to entry and rather than advocating for a monopoly, you're arguing for a fair market where competition defines price and in fact reduces price despite the effect on your bottom line potentially for consumers. Um, so every single thing about your business ethos is the kind of thing that I would like to see set as a standard within the business community because, and I think folks realize this, but sometimes they don't, all industry is, is overlapping groups of concentric social circles, right? It's, it's networks of CEOs and other influential corporate operatives who know each other in these small groups and that's how ideological influence spreads through them. And I actually want to tell a little interesting anecdote here uh, about the way in which uh, those social circles work. Devin, have you ever heard about finals clubs at Harvard? No, I'm, I can also say I have not. <laughs> oh, well, it, it'll be a learning experience for us all then. Um, so at, at Harvard, dating back to the 1700s, um, they have these clubs. They're uh, dinner clubs where these very wealthy people, uh, and the sons of very wealthy people, uh, every year, eight uh, sophomores from eight rising sophomores at Harvard uh, are selected to join each finals club. There's 13 or so finals clubs. And just to give you a sense of how pompous these places are, one of them has a rule where when you're in their clubhouse on Mass Ave, you can't actually look out the window. You have to look, you have to sit on a chair and look at a mirror to look out the window because you're not supposed to avert your gaze on the common people. Just to, to give you a sense, all right? So that's how pretentious these people are. But I bring it up not to tell a story about how pretentious they are, but to bring it up to explain how that structure is set up to help them be influential industry leaders. And what they do is each of these social clubs, the finals clubs, is very exclusive to get into in general. Only eight rising sophomores each year get into each club. But then each of those clubs has one member who's allowed into an inner circle of the finals clubs. And from there, there's actually an inner circle of that finals club. And that uh, is called DKE, Delta Kappa, Kappa Epsilon. And the reason I bring this up is that Harvard sets up those structures, not just because they're the Harvard students, not just because they like eating dinner with each other and being pompous jerks. They do it because they're training their students, their highly influential students, presidents, CEOs, industry leaders, and otherwise, how to navigate those overlapping concentric social circles that really define soft power in the post-industrial age. So, that segues me into a question. How do you, Devin, an independent businessman who clearly has integrity oozing from every pore, navigate a structure of industry that is designed to facilitate a grip on power by those who came before? Yeah, you just got to keep tunnel vision. You just got to stay focused on the main, you know, there's going to be a lot of distractions coming your way. It's going to be a lot of people approaching you, wanting your business, wanting equity in your business. You know, um, I've been approached already with people wanting my equity status just so they can get out of the general applicant pool they've been drowning in for so long, you know, so um, 
really is just I have a, I have a good support group. Um, my mother has been really supportive and all this, and she's really educated. Um, me and my mom are very close. We're only 16 years apart in age, so we're really we're really tight. And she's been an amazing woman for all this, and um, just instilling in me the confidence and the knowledge that I really have to have going forward. There's a lot of you know big guys out there, but you know, an association needs to be formed between equity, social equity people and economic empowerment need to have an association. Just like the CDA exists, it needs to be an association for social equity and economic empowerment, at least an alliance, just so we're not, just so we're all on the same page, just so they can pit us against one another. That's really what I don't want to see come from all of this. That's really so important. And um, I know I don't have any say in this, but I would not have any objections for you to run such an organization, Devin. So I hope that uh, discussion surrounding that issue will certainly continue because it's absolutely true that those networks of soft power will absolutely crush any attempts to break them up unless, much like we've seen throughout history, whether it was breaking up the robber barons uh, under Teddy Roosevelt at the turn of the 19, uh, 20th century, whether it was breaking up Bell Telecom in the late 1980s, or whether it is going to be breaking up the internet trusts in the years to come. Nothing threatens the integrity of a free market more so than the interconnected social networks of influence that define big industry. And so the cannabis community in Massachusetts, and I was thinking about this this week, one thing that gives me so much faith in the grassroots cannabis community is that the core ethos of the community seems to be centered around warding off that kind of corporate bad behavior and sort of corporate attempts to swallow whole anyone who gets in their way. I must, I sometimes wonder what it would be like to be a fly on the ball, a fly on the wall in a corporate boardroom of a Massachusetts MSO thinking about how they need to navigate interactions with a grassroots community that fundamentally views everything they do with suspicion. But I won't ask you to comment on that. I'll just leave that out there as a statement from myself and use that as an opportunity to once again let folks know that they've been watching the Young Jerks uh, this evening. We've been interviewing Devin Alexander from Rolling Relief, which is one of the first potential adult use delivery applicants in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Devin has regaled us for the past 45 minutes with tales of what got him into the cannabis industry, what he thinks needs to be improved about the application process for equity applicants, how he thinks municipal equity priority can be restructured, why he supports the state social equity loan fund, which is Senate Bill 2650, and so much more. Uh, for folks who are interested, you can always continue to get more content from The Young Jerks by following us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Young Jerks. You can also follow our written content on midnightmass.substack.com, and you can find content from the founder and host of The Young Jerks, Mike Crawford, and myself, Grant Smith, in Dig Boston, which is one of our print uh, partners. Uh, folks may also note that we have a flashy new uh, design for the Young Jerks this evening. I'd love some feedback for folks who may be watching. And a huge thank you to UFCW 1445 uh, for sponsoring the show uh, for the time being. So, uh, we've got about 10 minutes left, Devin, maybe closer to 15 minutes. I want to talk a little bit more about yourself because we've heard a lot about your views on policy, what you think about the American structure of rigged capitalism, and more. But yourself, you told us you uh, grew up in Quincy, uh, you got into the cannabis industry, uh, and then you uh, 
um, opened this company. But as you were growing up, were your interactions with cannabis positive? And was it that uh, experience that led you to realize how much benefit this plant could have for the community? Awesome. You know, um, cannabis has been a part of my life even before I was born. It's been a lot. It's been part. Um, my mother said I was born for this. Um, both my parents consumed cannabis. Both my grandparents consumed cannabis. So um, cannabis was never seen as a bad thing in my family. What more, what they were more worried about was the much harder stuff. Um, you know, and then the only people who really demonized cannabis were schools, you know, uh, the D.A.R.E. program, all that stuff, going through all that. Uh, I'm just sitting there like, yeah, it's all like, I just knew from the jump it was all bullshit. And so I knew I wanted to be a part of cannabis I knew what it was before it was. I knew the smell of it. I love everything about it. The look, the taste, the benefit of the medicinal properties it has, what it can do for the textile industry and making hempcrete. And I really just want to crush the stigma. A lot of people assumed, oh, you smoke weed every day. You're lazy. You're a lazy pothead. Don't you're stupid. And I'm really just out here to just smash that stigma into pieces. I want to show them that yeah, even though you smoke cannabis every day, you can do this. You know, you can, you can build your own business from the ground up because if you can start a cannabis business in massachusetts and make it financially stable you can start any business you know this is the most regulated industry in the entire state so um, i really i really have ambitions of being a serial entrepreneur once i get my other business up and running i really want to i'm really obsessed with the idea of being my own boss and um having other enterprises where i can create passive income as well um like buying a laundromat owning real estate stuff like that that's awesome. You you have ambitions that I think match your intellectual capabilities. And as I said, I'm blown away by your ability to amalgamate all of this knowledge and synthesize it into such an actionable structure for your goals. I think that it's one thing to have ideals, aspirations, and goals, but it's another thing entirely to actually manifest those ideals, aspirations, and goals into concrete progress. And you are a standing testament to the fact that that can be done. So huge kudos to you, Devin. Uh, it's, it's an honor to be in your presence in some ways. Well, so thank I, you, thank you though. It's an honor being you. You're the best man. You should, someone should ha have you as your compliance officer. Your knowledge <laughs> of the regulations and everything. Yeah, you're great, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's big. you give me a big head. Um, what I will do, uh, since we have a little bit of time left, is I'll read through some of the comments here. Uh, folks watching, if you have any questions for Devin, please leave them in the comments uh, if I see them. I'll do my best to read them. Uh, this is probably one of our most popular episodes we've had over the past two weeks, Devin, uh, maybe even over the past six months. So absolutely uh, very grateful to folks who have turned in. Uh, Eric Schwartz notes for us that the bill, uh, H4168, that task force bill we talked about that would have brought back the drug war, did not pass. And I will note that Eric Schwartz is correct about that. The, uh, the CBA who was working with Hannah Kane and some other folks to try to pass that bill did fail. Uh, the task force bill was sent to study, which means that it will not pass. Uh, so that is true and that is excellent. Uh, Paul Lally says, okay, I see you, Devin Alexander. Uh, <laughs> Izzy Delivery says, Devin Alexander is the man. And Blake Mensing says, smash that stigma. And I'm actually very grateful to Blake because I wanted to ask you a question about that stigma. So I think a lot of folks know a little bit about the history of prohibition and how it was a weaponized tool of a racist establishment to target communities who were threatening the power structures that existed at the time. But a lot of folks don't realize just how racist prohibition was. 
And so I was wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about how the fight for racial justice right now dovetails with the fight to destroy cannabis prohibition everywhere it pops up. Yeah, I mean, back in what is the 30s, it was Henry Anslinger who coined the phrase marijuana to make it seem like more dangerous dangerous thing than it actually was, saying that it, it really just wanted to make black and Mexicans attractive to a white woman. You know, that's what it all was. These jazz musicians down in New Orleans and close to Mexico, you know, um, bringing the cannabis in the United States that way. And then you have Richard Nixon with the war on drugs in the 70s, evolved into Ronald Reagan. And so where we are right now, you know, so you see a lot of companies posting Black Lives Matters, but what tangible change are they really move, are moving towards? You know, you can post something on Facebook, but then doing something is an entirely different state, you know? So, you know, a lot of people are just showing face and then I just need to be, there's need to be more action, you know, because I think what's really great, what should be, what come about is incubator programs and accelerator programs where these companies will take you in and foster your growth and don't ask for any equity in your business and really promote you, give you grants, give you educational access, give you a whole network of connections. So if that's what that's what you all do, that's what you need to do. You know, that's what it has to be done for a tangible change. And that's a big step. There's really not a lot of companies right now doing incubator programs in the state of Massachusetts. Yep. And that's actually what I was gonna ask you about. So you talked a little bit about earlier about how you've been you've benefited from some of these uh, social equity uh, incubation structures, and it's about more than just not giving ownership and equity. Though it's about you know uh, ensuring that the people participating in those incubators are doing so truly out of the goodness of their heart. So, um, can you tell us a little bit about what it's like to go through an incubator that doesn't? attach any predatory conditions? And what red flags were you looking out for in terms of people trying to actually take your company from you? Yeah, so the incubator program I was a part of was put on by Lantern. So Lantern's a new company to the Commonwealth. They were founded by the same people, which is alcohol, e-commerce. So Lantern, same concept, but with cannabis, you know. Um, so we had a five course, it was a five course session over the course of a couple of weeks. We would do it all through Zoom meetings and each different meeting, they would bring in a different special guest. Uh, one session we had a clarity coach, another one we had a lawyer and then another one we had um, just people who already went through the incubator program in the first session and told them what their, their experience was and all that. And you know, um, the biggest thing I'm looking out for is people want to stake in my business and they were really, they knew, you know, they really, they knew the regulations, they knew what they could and what cannot do. And in terms of advertising too, which is really big because they can advertise because they're not a plant touching business and but it's very stuff. There's a lot of restrictions right now for us as a whole cannabis marketing and advertising, which is one of the recommendations they're going to have for delivery is being uh, allowing us to create um, our own t-shirts and our own marijuana accessories. And that will in turn create a new stream of revenue for us. Oh yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. So that was from the hearing last Friday. Uh, one of the proposals related to delivery uh, was allowing you to sell branded merchandise and things like that. Um, as a delivery business owner, you know, don't give away the farm, but what does that kind of thing, if it passes, allow you to do? Oh, it allows us to get really creative. I have a lot of designs made up, a lot of stuff that I really want. So we had this, uh, me and my business partner, we had this planned out 
for a while, you know, just just talking about it, just to give to our friends and families. But now that we can literally legitimize it, you know, it's past the limit. Well, we can. <laughs> now, a question I like to ask a lot of our guests, especially the ones whose intellectual prowess leaves me almost speechless, is what gives you your passion? Every day you wake up, you're part of this community. I see you constantly fighting for the right thing, staying informed. Where do you derive that passion from every day? And the people who said I couldn't be successful dealing with cannabis, I had a lot of people talk down to me, a lot of my guidance counselors, a lot of my teachers, and in my previous profession when I was working at CVS and I told people on the way out what industry I was going to work in, they're like, I hope you're not testing any of the product, I hope you're not going to be smoking any cannabis. So I'm like, I'm selling people suboxone right now and you're worried about me smoking cannabis? Are you crazy? You know, so a lot of the naysayers, a lot of just... So that pharmacy I worked at was very close to the dispensary I work at now. So a lot of the people that I would see at the pharmacy, they would come into the dispensary and a lot of them don't even know the dispensary exists because once again, the whole marketing thing. So they have no idea they have access to an alternative medication and they would recognize me obviously. So they're like, hey, you're at, you're at the better pharmacy now. I'm like, yeah, you're that goddamn right. So they would see me and they would, they would tell me, oh, now that I have found cannabis, I have been able to reduce my opiate intake drastically. You know, before I was taking five separate different medications, and now all I have to do is just smoke a joint. It's that's what drives me and motivates me. Honestly, I never get tired of hearing stories like that. Well, that is very touching. And myself, um, when I first felt disabled, uh, I had very severe trigeminal neuralgia in my facial nerve, and I can testify that I would be in a very bad place if I had not found cannabis 18 months into my disability. I single-handedly was able to save me from that pharma narcotic hell. And our medical system is in a place right now where those pharma narcotic influences have as much control over what gets prescribed as sometimes the doctor themselves. And in that way, cannabis really is a mechanism of liberation for people to return to some sense of normalcy in their lives. And I've seen it firsthand. I've experienced it firsthand. And you hit the nail on the head there without question. Um, so I guess we've covered so many amazing topics. I cannot believe how many areas of discussion we hit on this evening. Um, before we get out of here, because we do have a little bit of time left, I want to leave it to you to talk to the people who are watching. It's one of our most popular episodes. Um, anything that you want to leave us with, anything you want to say, let folks know how to keep up with you. Please, the floor is yours. Yeah, um, my biggest thing would be to my fellow cannabis entrepreneurs out there in the space right now. Um, we have to do what's called a positive impact plan, saying how we're going to positively impact the community, you know. And I just want to say, do not donate any money to the police department. Do not put that in part of your positive impact plan. That is not where your money needs to be going. We do not need to be putting money back into the police from cannabis taxes and cannabis money. And um, the city of Portland, Oregon has taken that step already and none of their funding will go towards the police. I'm a big um, fan of the whole defund the police movement going on right now. Um, right now in the city of Quincy, we spend roughly $30 million on our police department and we don't even have a fully functional hospital. If I was to break my leg or something, I'd have to go to the next town over with the largest city in the state without a hospital. So that's really something I would just want to throw out there. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, well, thank you. 
thank you for that. And I know that folks um, who are in the know are very aware that local cities and towns across the Commonwealth are also thinking about reallocating their financial resources away from police departments. Uh, so that is something that folks absolutely uh, can keep up with, uh, whether in your local city and town or on the state level. And as Devin notes, please, you're a cannabis company, do not use your positive impact plan to try to give money to the police department. Please, please do not do that. The commission will reject you and laugh at you and the grassroots community will think that you are not at all paying attention to what you're supposed to be doing. Um, Kevin, we actually have a minute or two uh, more than I thought. So I have a chance to ask you about something else, which is diversity plans. So uh, right now, cannabis companies in the Commonwealth have to have diversity plans. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what a diversity plan is and how your company plans to incorporate those requirements into your operation? Yes, the diversity plan is basically saying what you're going to do to diversify your workforce so you don't have a group of all white males working, you know, so um, so a lot of a lot of companies, if you pay attention right now to any CCC meetings, a lot of their diversity plans get torn to shreds by Commissioner Title because they don't really include women, you know, it's tough. It's one thing not to help people from disproportionately impacted areas, but women are everywhere and you can really, that's what I really want to push home on my workforce, um, a lot of minorities as well. A lot of my friends are veterans, so too. So a lot of my former friends went into the military. So I wanna have a diverse workforce of minorities, women, veterans, and members of the LGBTQ community as well. Awesome, yep, the diversity plan absolutely sets up the framework to allow companies to do a lot of good work with disabled folks, disproportionately impact communities, women and others, as you talked about. So. Thank you very much for giving us that overview. Um, well, it's 5.03 p.m. Uh, Devin Alexander from Rolling Relief has been with us on The Young Jerks tonight. Uh, one final comment for you, Devin, from Ryan Reed. He says, you're doing great, or keep being great, my friend. So it's been very positive all night, Devin. Nothing but love for you uh, throughout the comment section. Uh, thank you to everyone who has been with us tonight to watch this episode. Uh, again, Grant Smith with The Young Jerks here. Thank you so much to Mike Crawford, the founder and host of The Young Jerks for giving us, us this platform today. I was trying to get him to call in and ask you a question, but he's walking dogs and there's nothing Mike's let, Mike likes more than walking dogs and enjoying a nice joint. So um, thank you all again for watching. You can find this episode along with all of our episodes on the video archives of our Young Jerks Facebook page. You can find more content, as I said, at midnightmass.substack.com. And please uh, feel free to listen to this episode if you missed it in its entirety on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Breaker or Anchor or anywhere else where your podcasts are found. We really appreciate the views. You can also help out the Young Jerks by subscribing on Midnight Mass. I think it's $5 a month might even be $5 a year. Whatever you can give us, it allows us to keep putting out the kind of hard-hitting, independent journalism that facilitates the integrity of the cannabis industry in the Commonwealth, and it allows us to continue doing work that is focused only on the public good and the interests of the community. So uh, follow The Young Jerks on Facebook for more information about our upcoming episodes. And thank you again to our new sponsor, UFCW 1445. We're very grateful to Devin Alexander from Rolling Relief for his time today. I am so thankful that his first appearance on The Young Jerks was this evening because I have no doubt, Devin, that we will have you on again in the future to get an update. So 
Thank you very much, Brian. I very appreciate you guys having me. Oh, anytime. And thank you again for watching. I hope everyone has a good night. And Devin, stay with us for a few minutes just to make sure we're clear. Have a good night, everyone.